Hi, this is Michael Buffer, and welcome to the Box Hard Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mikey Garcia. It's the monster from the swamps, Regis Ruguru Program. Hey, what's up? This is King Carlos Molina, former IBF world champ. This is Michael, the bounty hunter, 2012 Olympian and your people's champ. This is Charlie Edwards, flyweight champion of the world. This is Fast Eddie Chambers, and you're listening to the Box Hard Podcast with my main man, Joey Coastman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 234 of the Box Hard Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Coastman. The main man himself is back. He's with me once again this week for the duration of the show. That man being Mr. Hassim Rackman Jr., the cruiserweight slash heavyweight prospect. Hassim, how are you doing this week? I'm good, Joey. I'm good, man. Thanks for having me again. You know, I'm ready to rock out with the, with the Box Hard Podcast. For sure, for sure, for sure. The Joey and Hassim Jr. shows back on the road this week. Um, again, not too much really to discuss. We're kind of just going to go over a couple of a couple of little, you know, little boxing subjects just to pass up the time. Really, we're still in quarantine, um, and you know, there's not. There's not, you know, any real developments in the boxing world in terms of big news and stuff like that. So we're going to fill the gaps, give you something to listen to. Of course, once again, we're going to have another guest on the show. That guest this week is another former world champion. It's going to be Lou DeVal. Um, I believe that's going to be something like our 86th or 87th world champion on the show. So that'll be interesting. He'll be our sole guest on this week's podcast. The interview's around about 40 minutes long. So all in all, I'm expecting this podcast to to last probably just under an hour something like that something um like i say just to just to give you you know to listen to if you if if you're running out of things to listen to and podcasts like i say have been stopping and stuff like that during this period we are not stopping at all every single week we have something for you right hasim um the great thing about this week's show is that I said to you, I'm not quite sure what we're going to discuss. What are we going to talk about? And um, obviously, I asked you, what can you think of? Um, you you spoke to your father, former two-time heavyweight world champion. He sent us a, a heap of topics. So we're going to choose a couple off of, off of the list he sent you. It was incredibly handy. Um, let's start with, obviously, Hassim Senior mentioned... Should there be a requirement before turning pro to at least have 25 amateur fights? Um, The short answer from me, I'll I'll come to you in a sec, but the short answer from me is is no. Um, You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of guys that have proven themselves in the pro ranks and gone on to, to achieve fantastic things without 25 amateur fights. Um, one that springs to mind, he's a guy that I always think of um, with with silly, silly little trivia questions and stuff. I, I like to, to, to say this. Name me a guy who is a current world champion right now. He's never lost. He's unbeaten as a pro and he's unbeaten as an amateur. And everyone scratches their head saying, who could that be? David Benavides. I, I mean, one of the reasons why he he remained undefeated as an amateur possibly is because he only had 15 fights what a fantastic pro he's turned out to be without you know having 25 amateur fights that's my answer in short what are your thoughts Hassim? 
Um, I would agree with you. Uh, I don't think that the, the amateur style or the amateur program is uh, suited. Everybody's not going to be good at it. There's going to be some people who are, are, are much better pros than they are amateurs. You know, I think, you know, maybe, I mean, 25 fights is a lot. Some people don't have the funding to even, to even compete as an amateur for 25 fights. You know, a lot of people get into boxing because of financial reasons. So some guys may uh, 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 hop into boxing just to, just to make money. So if um if everybody had to have 25 fights, it would be a long. That I don't think that a lot of people, uh, uh, a lot of these champions who have built their records, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have people to fight. Who's gonna go get beat up 25 times for free when they they just now they could they could get beat up for thousands of dollars and, and they don't have to have any amateur fights. But um it it would make it, it would make it, if everybody had to have twenty five amateur fights, it would make it difficult to find little, you know, cab driver, uh uh, uh truck driver type opponents. It, it would it would make it make it tough to I mean, because nowadays you can find somebody off the street and be like, Hey, you wanna make a quick you wanna make a quick fifteen hundred? Well come on, all you gotta do is pass the blood test and fight my guy and you're good. I mean, past blood test, past physical, you can be a pro fighter. So I mean, um, those are the type of guys that they get on the back end. You got a lot of places in America where they they, they 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 basically come up with fighters like that, you know. And it's um guys that are just coming in to to take their licking and, and cash their check. If uh if you had to have 25 amateur fights, I think that the sport would be much much more competitive. I think it would be much more competitive. And uh, I think that um, you would see a, a, a huge amount of people who lose, um, like prospects who lose within their first within their first five or ten fights, as opposed to them fighting people who haven't fought before inside their five, first five or ten fights, and um, you know, building or padding that record. Yes, yeah, an interesting point you make. And I, while you were while you were talking, I was just trying to think of of some other people. My mind is kind of blank at the minute, but I know there's been many great fighters that haven't had extensive amateur careers, and in some cases haven't even had an amateur career. Um, just one that springs to mind: friend of mine, um, and also a a heavyweight contender, a heavyweight. You know, a heavyweight, probably top 10 or 15 guy, Gerald Washington. I think he only had about eight amateur fights. Obviously, he's uh, he reminds me every time we speak. I'm pretty much learning on the job. And, um, you know, he's, he's turned out to be a solid heavyweight. Um, moving on then to the to the next subject that your, that your father suggested. Before you, before, you, before, you, before you move on, I want to say um, my father was 73 as an amateur. So he went on to be two-time heavyweight champion of the world, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. So, I mean, he did it with 10 fights. And so, I mean, anything you put your mind to, you can achieve. So um, I think that, you know, he has a, he has a, it's a, it's a good question, but uh, I don't think you should have, you should be, you should have to have 25 fights to, to turn pro. That, that would just, it would make a lot of things complicated. See, I, I think I knew that about your father, but I think it slipped my mind. I'm sure I knew that. We did a real extensive extensive interview for a long time, um, you know, a while back, myself and, and Hasim Sin. I'm pretty sure I knew that. But anyway, um, that's, a, that's, again, a, a brilliant point. Seven and three as an amateur, that's just crazy. Um, yeah, moving on to the, to the next point. 
if you unify all titles, should you get a world unification belt where you don't have to worry about getting stripped for mandatories? Interesting talking point. Um, there's there's a lot of a lot of ways to look at it. I mean, obviously, if you if you unified all the titles and there was this you know this this kind of global recognized unification belt i know that you'd have the you know all the sanctioning bodies screaming where's my money where's my sanctioning fee money stuff like that so that's that's one flaw there um and just you know i i I quite like the scenario now i know that I know that a lot of people don't like this idea, Hasim, and you may be maybe one that doesn't, but a lot of people like the idea of one one proper champion per weight. There shouldn't be four champions, stuff like that. I like the idea that there's four champions. Um, there's just so many boxers now in boxing. You know, there's many there's more boxers now in boxing than there was twenty, thirty years ago. And because of that, you know, if there was just one champion, for example, instead of four, obviously you know, you'd be waiting ages for mandatories and, oh, it would just be hellacious. So, in some ways, as boxing fans, we do appreciate unification fights. They're the most exciting fights that can be made. But, um, when a guy picks up a couple of belts, we know that that means, you know, we're not going to see world title fights as often at that weight. We know that that means if the champion is to get injured, the whole the whole division is is waiting. You've got to think about the guys that are ranked number one and number two and number three. They're waiting a long time, and I do appreciate kind of, I do appreciate um, the likes of Alexander Usyk, the way he picked up all the belts at, at cruiserweight and then just vacated them and moved on quickly and opened up the door. You know, um, I like what. Who did it? Uh, Terence Crawford did it at 140. Of course, he didn't hang around for long. He moved up. He vacated the belts. But um, yeah, once again, the, my answer to that, um, I kind of feel like as boxing fans, we've we've got an opinion on who we believe is the best at each weight. But um, an actual belt to signify that, like I say, with the sanctioning bodies all kind of, you know, itching and scratching about. You know, it's it's, it's like twenty five percent of each of the four. They've all got their piece of that belt. I don't think it would work, and um, it's it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one, you know, because people fight to get in a position to become a mandatory. It's it's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, like I say, the WB is it the WBC? Yeah, the WBC kind of did, or they're trying to do something like that with this. You know, the, the belt they gave. Um, Canelo, forgot the name of the belt now. And Devin Haney, he's got another one, hasn't he? I think. Um, what's that belt called again? <laughs> My, mine's totally blank. What is that called? That that belt that you don't have have any mandatories, you know? Franchise champion. That's what it's called. Franchise champion. There you go. So, so the WBC are trying to do something like that. But people are already moaning at that. And I think if all four sanctioning bodies all unanimously agreed on doing something like that, it would just it would be a bit of a nightmare really, Hasim. That's my opinion. Yeah, that's a that's a tough part because every every sanction every every you know, every body feels that they're the best. So the WBO feels like they're the best, the IBF feels like they're the best, so does the WBA and of course the WBC. So um everybody feels like they're the best, but I mean I, I think that if there was 
a one belt, a unification belt title to where if you're fighting for all four of the belts and you get this belt and, and you get to reign and defend with this belt, um, somebody somebody would have to uh, come up with that. I, I, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think that, you know, once that once it gets established, everybody just has to be on the same page, you know. Um, uh, if, if, if this was a thing, Maybe Usyk would have stayed. At, maybe Usyk, I'm sorry, Usyk would have stayed at cruiserweight. Maybe Crawford would have stayed at 140 and kept competing if he didn't have to worry about you know all the four belts. And then once once so if this would work, would you no longer be the champion of 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 you know that weight class, or would you still be the champion and you're defending your unified title and just that belt of so so let's say for example. Uh, Usyk is is fighting at cruiserweight. He has all the belts, and he has this uh, undisputed belt. When he defends this, when he defends his undisputed belt, is he defending all the titles? Or if he's fighting the number one rated IBF contender, is he just putting his IBF belt on the line? Now, what happens to the belt if he loses? He's not undisputed anymore, but he's the last person to have the undisputed belt. So is the belt now vacated, and then whoever uni- whoever unifies the division and becomes undisputed next is the champion. It's a, it's a lot of ways and a lot of things that happen in boxing where this could get it could get tricky. But um, I think that if you sat down and went over the right scenarios with the right people, that um, this is something that could, that could happen. But it's, it's not likely, in my opinion. Yeah, there's obviously egos at play as well from the sanctioning bodies, and. Um... You know, another thing that would worry me in that situation, I don't want to say that boxers have landed lucky punches and gone on to win fights, but it would just, you know, we've seen it go wrong. We've seen massive, massive, massive upsets. And if a, you know, a unification champion or whatever was to lose to a guy that we don't really think... For example, Andy Ruiz beating Joshua. If Joshua was some kind of you know, uh, unif- unified belt holder, to to lose, like, all four of those belts in... in I know it, it can happen, but to lose that status that would come along with this imaginary belt for the moment, you know, in a fight like that, where, it, you, you know, I don't know, it's just... It just doesn't really sit right with me. And what I will say, Hassim, another thing that, that um, has come in my head, again, while, while we've been discussing this, um, there is that quote-unquote lineal title the invisible belt that doesn't really exist that that Tyson Fury you know claims to claims to hold and and rightly so for beating the man that beat the man and whatever but is that not enough you know the ring the ring magazine they do their bit you know that correct me if I'm wrong but they sort of do their bit I feel like generally in 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 you know in, if you look down the divisions the ring belt holder tends to be in my opinion anyway the best fighter in that division most of the time i feel like they kind of um i mean it, obviously they're not giving these belts to guys that that have held all four titles all the time but it seems like that belt really belongs to the guy that's beaten the guy and i'm kind of failing to separate a lineal champion here with with a unified all four belts kind of champion because um, the way I see it, if you've won all four belts, you're the man. There's no dispute in it. Um, you know, what I'm you know what I'm getting at there, kind of thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, I I completely agree. I think um, Ray Magazine has done an amazing job for the decades that they've been around. And um, I've watched them for decades, and I've never seen them um 
pretty much wrongfully crowned someone the champion. The ring magazine belt is is hard to earn. There are champions that have won the uh, the most coveted uh, title to me in 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 the boxing public's eye, not to me myself, but in the boxing public's eye is the WBC title. So there have been champions who won that WBC title. Uh, for example, Tony Harrison. Tony ha- Harrison was WBC champion of the world, but he was not the. I don't believe he was the ring magazine champion. I'm 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 not 100% sure on that, but I don't believe he was the ring magazine champion. And if so, there's still other uh, examples of uh, you know like the the guy we were talking about last time, uh, Martin. It, it, I swear I'll be butchering his name, but Martin Bacoli's brother. He's the uh, he's the WBC world cruiserweight champion right now, and I don't believe he's the Ring Magazine champion. So Ring Magazine does a, a an amazing job at uh, crowning whoever's the best in that division as the Ring Magazine champion. And um, if there was, if the lineal belt did exist, I would think that that would be it. And um, that that actually speaks on that uh that title that we're talking about the, the ring magazine title is probably the most the closest thing that we, we have to that right now because it's not a it's not a, a, a sanctioned belt it's a belt you have to earn and it's a belt you absolutely have to be the man to get or you have to beat the man and to be the man you have to beat the man so like i said you have to be the man to get that ring magazine belt in any weight class and that that kind of gives me another idea now, Hasim. I would like to go through um, some of the divisions. I don't want to go right down to minimum weight and light flyweight and all that kind of stuff. But if we start a heavyweight and kind of work our way down, um, should we go through from from heavyweight, you know, down cruiserweight, light heavyweight, and 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 down as far as we can go, as far as our brains will allow us to, and just give our you know, our opinion of the best fighter in that division. Yeah, that's fine with me. Let's do that. So, obviously, I know you're going to say Michael Hunter being heavyweight. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> See, it's 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 wrong because we're both massive, massive members of the of the Michael Hunter fan club. But just to make it interesting, I'm gonna go against. I'm gonna go against. I'm gonna say Tyson Fury. Obviously, I already beat him. Yeah. We already beat him. <laughs> As we say, amateurs are different. <laughs> amateurs are different. Well, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. When when you've been when you've been and I said this on the last uh, podcast. When you've been outclassed, you know Tyson Fury knows he can't beat Mike Hunt. He knows that. And and speaking of that, Mike actually sent me a few a few pictures of of their amateur bout as well. He sent me a few pictures the other day. And does he and does he look like does he look like he's in full control? Well, put it this way: in one of the pictures, both his arms were up in the air. He's celebrating before the bells rung. So I think that that, that speaks for itself there. But I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm, I'm gonna be controversial. I'm gonna say Tyson Fury heavyweight. You've got Michael Hunter. Um, if I said Mike as well, some people might just tune out of this podcast because it would be like the Michael Hunter podcast. <laughs> but cruiserweight, cruiserweight. Um, obviously, Usyk no longer there. Um, I think you've got Gassiev that's moved up to heavyweight. So for me, I've, I've got to say Bradis. But you may say Dortikos. Uh, or you may say Mar- um, Ilunga Makabu. No, I'm not going to say that. Uh... <laughs> 
I like I like Dodecos and uh, I like Breeders, and I think that that's the best state that that's the best fight at Cruiserweight right now. Um, but uh, they got a young guy at Cruiserweight who, who, who's making a lot of noise, and he, he looks like he wants to get these guys to run for their money. So um, I'm gonna say the best guy at Cruiserweight right now would be Breeders. And then I'm gonna give I'm gonna give one B to somebody I think would would do well against Dota Coast. Um, I would actually pick him pick him to upset Dota Coast, and that's uh, Lawrence Acoli. So I would give I would give it to Breedis, but I would say Lawrence Acoli isn't far behind. Me. Wow, yeah, because they're talking about making the Acoli and can't remember who they're trying to get him to fight. Um... Oh man, who are they trying to get him to fight? I've completely forgot. But anyway, he's oh Glowacki. They're trying to get him to fight Glowacki, if I'm not mistaken. That for me is a tough yeah. fight for for Akoli. I would favour Glowacki in that one. I I uh, I, that t- is a tough I tell you what then, Hasim, because because you you mentioned Lawrence Akoli as someone that you know you've you you've got high hopes of coming through. I tell you what, you know this guy very well. How do you believe a fight would unfold? Should it materialize? Probably won't, but fantasy reasons. It is it is uh, quarantine week again. Um, Lawrence Acoli <laughs> against Andrew Tabiti. Uh, okay, so uh, we have to see how Andrew bounces back. I've known Andrew. I've grown up with Andrew. And um, I believe he'll bounce back like a true champion. And um, b- before his last fight, I would have said he was the best cruiserweight. But um, he's coming off a, a, a knockout loss. We have to see how he bounces back. And um, some 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 people bounce back from knockout losses, and some people don't. But um, I grew up with Andrew. Obviously, we we, we both from Las Vegas, so um, we have hundreds of rounds and sparring together. I I I would favor uh Andrew in that fight. If if Andrew and Okoli fought, I would favor Andrew. He has he's he's definitely faster and um I believe he's he's the better uh a uh, better skilled fighter. But um <clears throat> after sometimes after su- suffering a knockout loss like that, you're not the same fighter. And I've seen that happen. And um I wish the best for Andrew and I really, really hope that he bounces back and becomes a world champion. But um like I said before, we have to see yeah, we we've yet to see how he how how he's gonna respond when he gets hit when he gets hit big. Um, I, I hope that he takes it on the chin and and keeps rocking as a, as a as a as a as a champion, especially an American champion in a division that needs light. But uh, I, I would favor Andrew in that fight. But like I said before, we we would have to see how his chin holds up because some people when they get knocked out. They never, they never recover from it. They never, they never let that go. And um, I know Andrew's already been back in the gym, and he's already been sparring with Anthony Joshua, and he's already. Um, he, he, I, I believe that he's put it behind him. I have faith in Andrew, but uh, like I said, we have to see. I can have all the faith in, in the world in you, but you, you have to prove it. So once Andrew gets back under them lights and uh, and proves that you know this is all behind him, whatever happened in the Dirty Coast fight happened. And um, he he was man, he was so close, he was so close, but um, he just he just you know you got to go back to the drum board, do a little bit things different, work a little bit harder, and come a little bit stronger next time. Yeah. So I would favor I would favor Tabidi if they were to fight, but like I said, we we have to see if if his chin holds up. That's why I think like right now, 
in the moment, Okoli is, is, is next up in the cruiserweight division just because he, he uh he's undefeated, he's tall, he's 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 uh he's got good power, he's got a, a, a ridiculous reach, and um he's gonna be tough to beat for anybody. Yeah, the the, the story I like about Lawrence Okoli, obviously he was um, when he was a kid, he was a little fat kid. I think people used to kind of. Um, you know, I'm not sure if he was bullied. I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure if he was, but he was a little fat kid. Probably not too little, by the way. I think he's six five now. I don't imagine he was too small. Um, but you know, he worked in McDonald's. He, um, I think, at one point in his life, just before he turned pro or something like that, I think it was. He had about eight or nine pounds in his bank account, and um, you know, he's he's changed his life. He, he lost the weight, got in tremendous shape. Obviously, went to the Olympics. How much money is that? I don't know how much money that is. Eight, eight or nine pounds worth of money—that's a lot. Eight or nine pounds worth of money—that's a lot over here. Eight. That's a big bag. No, no, no. I'm no, no, no. I'm no, 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 no. I'm saying eight or nine pounds. Like that's like eleven dollars, man. Oh no, 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 no. Hell no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're talking about no. eighty or ninety thousand. No, 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 no. He had eight or nine pound in his bank account. That was it. He okay. could just about buy himself a cheeseburger at McDonald's. You know, he he had he had nothing, and he turned his life around. Made yeah, I'm glad that he, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So glad that he bounced back, man. I love to see that. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, went to the Olympics, turned pro, doing doing tremendous things now, and actually, he's looking at purchasing a McDonald's himself. He wants to buy a franchise just for the joke of it. Um, so hopefully, he does that. That'll be cool. Um, moving down yeah, to light heavyweight. Um, again, this is another strange one. Um, Hassim, because it never kind of sat right for me. Well, I suppose he did beat... I'm going off on a tangent a little bit here, but I was thinking of the Ring Magazine stuff that we said. It never really sat right with me that Adonis Stevenson hung on to that belt for such a long time, the Ring Magazine title. But then again, he did beat Chad Dawson, who was on fire. But um, anyway, Kovalev, definitely not for me. I think it's got to be the young blood. I say young blood, he's, he's, he's not super young 35 Arta Baturbiev though looks looks to be yeah short and sweet on that one I think uh, go on go on I think that uh, my pick is not going to be agreed with across the board I think the best light heavyweight in the world is Marcus Brown I don't think I think that um you know, he, he learned a valuable lesson I'm not sure I guess I'm not sure I guess Lou DeVal will, will agree with that <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I don't think so. But um, I, I think that uh, I think because I know Lou Lou Chase Badu, not and, anymore. Um, not anymore. I know. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know he wasn't training Badu. Anymore. Yeah, no, he but, um, he decided he made his his decision to split from Badu before the Jean Pascal fight. He actually said on fight week, this is my last fight. And then he lost and he still did walk away. He still stuck to his word and walked away. Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know about that. Yeah. We will find that out later on in the broadcast. I believe. Yes, sir. We'll probably hear about that. Yeah. Carry on. Go okay. On. But, uh, yeah, like I said, I think that, um, I think that Peter Biev is an amazing fighter. I think that Dimitri Bavol is, is a, is a specimen at light heavyweight. But, uh, Aside from uh, uh 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 what's his name John Pascal lost, I, I I think that a lot of the times 
like I said um, before with the Andrew Jabiti fight, we got to see how he responds. We already seen how Marcus responded. Marcus got up. He finished the fight. He, uh, he, 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 to me, he's, a, he's definitely a, a, a true champion, and I've been watching him. Like I said, I, I, a lot of my picks are going to come from me seeing a body of work uh, 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 over a long period of time. And I've seen Marcus Brown fight since he was 17 years old. He's, he's what, he's, what, 29 now? So I've been watching him fight for more than 10 years. And when I watch somebody fight, I watch them fight. Uh, Marcus Brown is, is, is an extreme talent, and I think that he'll prove me right. Uh, when people go back and listen to this, I think that he's the best light heavyweight that, that's out right now. Hmm. I mean, I don't think he beats... I don't think he beats Baturbiev. I tell you who I think would give him proper work, though, Hasim. And you're gonna say, you're gonna laugh. You're gonna say, ah, no way. Marcus will beat him easy. But I, I tell you what, a, a fight I'd like to see: Marcus Brown against Joe Smith Jr. I'd take that. Oh yeah, I like that because uh, I think that Joe Smith and Jesse Hart just had a, a, a great fight. That's right. But um, you know, I think that Jesse. I mean, yeah, I think Jesse is. Uh, is, is a smaller guy. Jesse Jesse fought at 165 in the amateurs, and Marcus fought at 178. He's he's, he's bigger than Jesse. He's gonna hit Joe Smith harder than Jesse hit him. And um, How I think that Brown? He, he Brown's taller than me. Wow. So how tall? What do you reckon? He's six four or something like that. Nah, he's probably six three, six three and a half. Jesse, me and Marcus three, around. I think. Yeah, me and Jesse are the same height. Marcus is a little bit taller than us. Okay. okay. So, I, I, I think Jesse, I'm, I'm sorry, I think Marcus is a little over 6'3", and me and Jesse are, are right at that 6'3 range or a little little under 6'3". Okay. Going down to super middle, and it's, it's a, it's a, I'm quite unsure of where to put Canelo in here. I'm not quite sure. What weight class should we say Canelo is? <laughs> We're going to put him at 160. 160, all right. Okay, we'll put him at 160. Um, 168 and super middleweight. So over here we have, um, well, we actually have Daniel Jacobs after his fight against um, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. We've got, obviously, a few Brits in the in the rankings as well. Um, Callum, Callum Smith. Callum Smith. Mr. John Smith. <laughs> Did he win his last fight? Callum Smith. Yeah. Yeah, he's unbeaten, twenty seven and oh. Well, his last fight could Did have gone either way. Did he win his last yeah. fight? Could have gone either way. Did he win his last fight? Yeah. <laughs> uh I like I like Daniel Jacobs, I like Kyle Smith, but David Benavidez takes it for me as super middle. Even Dude, even Billy boy. Joe Saunders David, in there as well, you know. I, I was gonna say I was gonna say David and Billy Joe Saunders would be like, you know, that, that would be that would decide it for me as super middle, but um I, I, I I really think that uh, I really think that David Benavidez beat Billy Joe, and Billy Joe is an amazing talent. But that boy, uh, David Benavidez, he's 23. He's on fire. He's 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 been he's been knocking people out left and right. He came down from 300 pounds. That man is a, is a problem at, at super middleweight, and um, I just think he's too big and too strong for that weight class. And I, I think that if he stays there, he could. He could do a, he could do special things. Um, David Benavidez with the youth on his side, maybe the speed, maybe too much power. 
I think that uh, Billy Joe will really have to big, dig in his bag, will really have to bring out all his skills to beat David Benavidez. I, 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 I've seen David Benavidez, fight, David Benavidez fight in person a couple times, and um, that kid is special. I, I've never seen him go to distance. I'll put it like that. Um, a man that would have an argument if he was if he was listening to this would be Caleb Plant, and I tell you what, he's got a good argument, good fighter. Yeah, Dave, Caleb Plant. I've been watching him for years too, man. We went to a lot of amateur tournaments together. He, he, he's an amazing story. You know, we we obviously have uh, uh, something in common. We both are fighting for our dead children. Our children both passed away, and they're on to the next life. So Caleb Plant is one of my favorite fighters. But I want to see Caleb uh, develop. Even though he, he he's a world champion, I still think that he, he has uh, room to develop more and become more polished. And I think he would agree with that. And uh, I, I think that in the future, maybe next year or the year after, he may he may give David Benavidez, David Benavidez a run for his money. But as of right now, if I had to pick who's the best at 168 pounds, I'm picking David Benavidez because uh, the, uh, I, I just think he can beat all the other guys. I think he has what it takes to beat all the other guys. Um, I mean, all the way down the list. Daniel Jacobs, Tyler Smith, Billy Joe, Caleb, Rocky Fielding. I mean, it, it, it's, it's so many people that that he could be tested with, and I, I think that he would pass all the tests. Okay. Um, so, so that's super middleweight done. Um, by the way, I, I think Callum Smith on his day is – is one of the best fighters at 168 by a mile. Oh yeah, Easy. I will say it, and I've noticed. I've been watching Callum Smith from from early on in his career. I've always said it. He's he's a guy. I've said it to him as well. If he's in a if he's in a fight where he thinks he's going to win easy, he looks terrible. If he's in a fight where you know he knows that he can't cut any corners and he needs to give it his best. He, he seems to pull it out, and he looks great. That's why, if you look at his best performances, they've actually come against probably his toughest opponents as well. So I, I've got to be honest, his last fight, John Ryder, I love John Ryder to pieces, good friend of mine, been on the show tons of times. Um, you know, John, John Ryder, I've got to be honest, I didn't think he had a chance against Callum Smith. Too small and all the rest of it. And I, I reckon Callum Smith probably fought the same as me. And, um, you know... It's happened before. Callum Smith has boxed journeyman, and he's looked terrible. But then he has a fight against George Groves. Obviously, George Groves, you know, he retired after the fight. That speaks for itself. But you know, that was a brilliant performance from from Callum Smith that night. And uh, yeah, you know, yeah, he's yeah. had a he's had a tricky path anyway. Um, right, middleweight. I think we've got to give it to Canelo. Quite, quite obviously. Oh, come on, come on, Hassan. I'm trying to. No, I'm looking on the list. I'm trying to see. I'm trying. To, you're not going to say Demetrius Andrade. Yes, I am. Uh, listen, I the love the baddest Demetrius man in boxing. That's the baddest man in boxing. I'm telling you right now, that's the baddest man in boxing. Nobody's going to beat him. I don't care what weight they fight at. Ain't nobody going to beat Demetrius Andrade. I've been watching him since I started boxing. I've, 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 I have to rack my brain to see a round that he clearly, clearly lost. Like. He, he's so competitive. He's so good that I, I just – I clearly – I think that he beats Canelo. I think that he beats Triple G. I think that he beats everybody all the way up to heavyweight, all the way up, all through the whole cruiserweights. I think he beats all of them. 
I think that Boo Boo is a special talent in boxing, and if the world never finds out, it's going to be such a shame. That is my number one pound-for-pound fighter, period, in boxing. I'm riding on him to beat Canelo, to beat Triple G in back-to-back weeks. That he's that bad. I've seen him. Obviously, I mean, I've been watching him fight for 15 years. I think that he's the baddest man on the planet with a pair of gloves right now. If anyone has any complaints, send them in. (laughs) (laughs) Man, when I put him, when I put my my pound for pound lit and I had Demetri and Andrade number one, do you know how much, oh my goodness, they wouldn't leave me alone. They wouldn't leave me alone. People are like, he's joking, he's joking. And I'm telling you, I really, truly, honestly, as a boxing period, I really believe that. I don't think anybody can beat him. And I, I, I love a lot of these fighters. And I think so highly of a lot of these fighters. But from 154 to 200 pounds, nobody can beat Demetrius Andrade. With the 15, 20 pound weight advantage, they still wouldn't beat him. At underscore Hassim Rackman Jr., if you want to send any abuse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a big fan of Demetrius Andres. I've been a big fan of his from, from, um, from early on. I remember when he, when he boxed Brian Rose from over here and smashed him to pieces. Um, you know, I've, I've been a big fan of his. Obviously, he hasn't got the most exciting style, but I don't really care about that because, you know, his style makes him so difficult to beat. And I respect that. And, you know, he doesn't get hit. I really respect that. You know, I'm one of them guys. Everyone said Vladimir Klitschko is too safe. I'm like, no, I don't care. This guy is fighting like that to to, to, to be able to, you know, be a boxer for longer. You know, the, it's, 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 not, yeah. it's not a long sport. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, short, it's a short sport. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Demetrius Andrade. But, I mean... I want to see him get these fights. It's not really his own fault either. Obviously, he had promotional problems. He's gone with Eddie Hearn. It's not his fault at all that the Billy Joe Saunders fight fell out of bed two times or whatever. You know, I blame Billy Joe for that. I don't think anyone else can disagree, really. I'm a big Demetrius Andre right. fan, but got to give it to, I've got to give it to Canelo. I think he's, he's one of the best fighters. He's probably number, number two or something on my pound-for-pound pound list. Um... I Absolutely, Canelo is Canelo's a great talent. I, I really feel like he's, he's one of the best right now. If 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 Demetrius Andrade is number one, then Canelo would be two or three. But uh, he would probably be three because I'll put Terence Crawford above uh, Canelo. But um, to me, Demetrius Andrade is unbeaten. He he, he nobody's found a way to beat him. He's just my he's my number one. I I, I will I will bet on. Demetrius Andrade every time he fights. And just like Floyd, if you bet on him every time he fights, you'd be a rich man. I don't think he's going to lose. I just, it, it's, I'd be hard pressed to find somebody that's going to beat him. Mm. I mean, I, I say that Canelo's my number one at middleweight. I say that even though I thought Golovkin beat him the first time and I thought the second fight was a draw. Um, you know, I don't actually feel like in either of those fights Canelo conclusively won. Yet I still rank him above Golovkin at middleweight, which is a strange one. Um, by the way, again, without going off in on a, on a tangent and without longing this whole thing out too long, Hasim, did you watch back any of those um, Canelo Golovkin fights? And if so, do you remember your scorecard? I watched the, I watched the, 
Yeah, you can check him out Twitter at underscore Hassan Markman Jr. I actually scored the uh, the first fight, and it, I got 113-115 Golovkin. Okay. I gave Canelo the first three. I gave Golovkin rounds four through nine. I gave Canelo 10, Golovkin 11, and Canelo 12. So uh, I believe that was the first fight. I didn't make a note on which fight it was, but, yes, that was the first fight. Yeah, that was definitely the first fight. I, I watched. So I, I thought Golovkin won the first fight, and um, I haven't gone back and scored the second fight yet. But uh, like anybody that's logged into my Twitter, I always I'm, I'm always watching fights, judging them, and I got my whole scorecard up. And you can see how I score each round. And um, yeah, tune in. Shout out the uh, 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 fight score. Download the app. Yeah, I know that. Um, that's an app I use as well. Um, yeah, great app. Um, Right, going down to 154, this is where I feel like a lot of people would have a lot of different answers, really. But for me, oh, yeah. I've got to give it to... Because I like, I like this division in particular because everyone fights each other and everyone has, has lost their O's now, um, the top guys, really. Um, aside from Brian Castano, that's one there. He's uh, he's a guy who hasn't lost his own. Um, obviously beat Errol Spence, I think, in the amateurs. But anyway, number one for me, Jamel Charlo. I like Jamel. I like Jamel. Um, hell of a champion, man. Come back and get his belt and, um, in, in, in devastating fashion. But I don't think he wins in a rematch against Lubin. In a rematch against so, with Against Lubin. I don't oh, think he wins. I think Lubin wins a rematch if they ever have it. Um, right now, I'm gonna give it to Jamal Charlo. No, J- Jamal did. beat beat. Um, didn't Jamal beat Lubin? No, no, he didn't. Did he? No. No, 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 no. Jamal knocked out Lubin in the I'm first round. I'm confused with J Rock. Go on, go on, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knocked out J Rock. So um, I, I think that Jamal will come up short in a rematch against Lubin, and um, that's just with personalities and. Uh, fight history and everything all combined, I think that I, th- I don't think that he'll beat Lubin again. But right now, in this moment, I, you got to give it to Jamal Charlo. I mean, he's the man in the division right now. And um, if he takes out uh, the likes of Kel Brook or or, or he takes out a Jared Hurd, it, that's just going to be whew, that would just be uh that would that would be on fire. <laughs> that would be on fire. I, I also would like to see him fight Jason Rosario, who just beat um J Rock. I would like to see him and him and uh, Jamal Charlo fight. Uh, uh, I think that there's a lot of good fights at 154, man. A lot of good fights, like you said. Pretty much everybody's already lost their O, and um, it's 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 like it's such a tough battle to be to be uh, at the top of the division. You got a lot of guys in this division, and um, I, I think right now Jamal Charlo stands at the top. You have to give it to him. He, he lost his belt. He came back. He knocked out. He, he knocked out the person that took it from him to, to regain the title. It's uh, it, 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 it's definitely a clear cut. I think Jamel at one fifty four. But with that being said, I don't think he beats Lubin in the rematch. Okay, I think we should cut the 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 ranking from each division right there because obviously the next one would be welterweight, and I can see that that um 
I can see the opinions on that one being quite uh, quite interesting from us both, actually. So let's cut that one there because the podcast has gone on a lot longer than I thought it would have. Let's finish though, Hasim, with the with, with a question that was sent in um, for us on on, on Twitter. Um, this one's from at Ricey underscore SUFC. He's been listening to the podcast for years and years. He is one of, if not the most loyal listener we have. Um, he also won the, the competition as well last week. I did a competition if you could name all the co-hosts that we've had over the years. And I think he named every single one, which was crazy. That's what's up. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, that's obviously, Hassim, you know, the, the aim is to interview two guys a week. So t- to actually host the show like me and you are doing now, I think I've had about 11 or 12 in total do that. Um, you know, and those are, by the way, because a few people sent them in um, in my direct message. Um, I've got a little list of them somewhere. In fact, let me just go back to my direct message with him because I think he named them all. Um he names the first person he names Hassim Rackman Jr. He names him straight away. Oh, that's there we go. Shout out. There we go. And um, second, obviously, former heavyweight world title challenger Eddie Chambers, former WBO super featherweight world champion Barry Jones, heavyweight contender Michael Hunter, Umar from IFL TV, um, and then we've had a couple of uh, of ladies help out over the years. Obviously, Mimi Melendez. Um, Miriam, B-Rock and uh, Sophia Di Stefano and then obviously um, Diego from I think he worked for the the Boxing Voice, I think he was their UK guy if I'm not mistaken and obviously the infamous Ayaz Sumra, so I think that's about 11 there, I don't think I've missed anyone, but anyway he sends in a question um, boxers not sparring in camp, you answered it already on Twitter but let's go over it <laughs> on the podcast Hasim, boxers not sparring in camp before big fights, a lot of people criticised Anthony Yard for not sparring before the Kovalev fight now with the virus a lot of fighters could go into fights without sparring. Do you think this will affect many fighters' performances not being able to spar? Firstly, I've got to say I've said it before, Anthony Yard is especially his trainer, not so much Anthony Yard, who by the way is going through incredibly tough times right now, obviously lost his his father to coronavirus and then a couple of days later he lost his grandmother, so his his father's um mother. Um, within a space of a few days, it just goes to show how serious oh, this thing is. I'm so sorry to hear that. And the the Rocking family's prayers are, are definitely with with the Yard family. That that's that's a terrible thing. And you know, with this virus going on, man, we we just encourage everybody to stay home, stay indoors, and, and just just please be be healthy, be safe, be clean. Yeah, for sure. And um, but like I say, Anthony Yard, not so much Anthony Yard, but his trainer Tunde Ajay, um, a guy that has, has spent quite a bit of time actually in in the Mayweather gym. Um, he is a bit of a wind up merchant. He is known for um, for for annoying people on purpose, and he gets a bit of a kick out of it. So when he says Anthony Yard doesn't do any sparring, I think at one point he even said I'm Anthony Yard's main sparring partner. That's totally that's totally just fun and games. Obviously, everyone knows Anthony Yard. Um, definitely does spar. I'm not quite sure he does super hard sparring. I don't think he believes in having a massive war in the gym. But I've been there. I can I can actually say I've been 
Anthony has actually invited me down to watch him spar um, on a couple of occasions. I think I've only been down there once, though. But anyway, I've seen him spar, so <laughs> sorry to, to put that one to bed. He does spar, and um, if you if you <laughs> fell for the joke that Tunde laid out, then then yeah, you know it's it's just a joke. Um, I think he's he, didn't he come down to the Mayweather gym and do some sparring? Was it with Tabiti or someone like that? I wouldn't know. That's not why I trained that. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think he came to the Mayweather gym and sparred someone. It was either Tabiti or it was either Tabiti or Marcus Brown. I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah. probably Tabiti because I don't think Marcus Brown does much work in the Mayweather gym. Yeah. Okay. All right, but um, yeah, this this the, uh, the question I'll, I'll throw over to you, Hasim. With the virus, um, obviously, a lot of fighters at the minute are without sparring. Do you think this will affect many fighters' performances not being able to spar? It's a good question. Um, what's the answer? My answer is yes. Uh, when when you have a fighter that goes into a fight and he hasn't been impacted, I mean, a punch, to, your body is, is is getting adapted to being hit, to, to hitting people and to swinging and missing when you're in, when you're in sparring. You're, you're, getting, you're breathing down, you're getting all your timing down and the, the way you want to throw punches and shots and to, to go into a fight, into a, into a real live fight without being hit and without, without really hitting somebody, that's going to be, it's going to be foreign to your body, especially coming out of the quarantine. So you're coming out of the quarantine, you ain't been hit in months. You haven't sparred in months and you can go hop right into the ring. And, and, and I think that a lot of people's bodies will feel a shock. If they ain't been sparring and then they get hit with a good shot, maybe that shot uh, uh, you either wouldn't have gotten hit with or you would have took it a little better if you would have took a shot that was probably a little bit more uh, – the same shot, but it had 16-ounce gloves on. Sometimes you go into a fight and you get hit with the same shot that you got hit with in sparring. But it, it, it's different because it, there's a difference. The difference is 16-ounce gloves or 18-ounce gloves or 20-ounce gloves, whatever, whatever, whatever you may be using – and when you get in a fight, you use eight ounce gloves and ten ounce gloves. So there's a huge difference, and it's definitely people spar for a reason. The sparring, sparring has been around and has been uh, uh, used in every boxing gym for a reason. And um, I definitely won't be getting into uh, a, a fight that's going to count on my record forever and be in the history books without sparring. That just doesn't, even if it's light sparring, I mean, it just doesn't benefit uh, me as a, as a, as a, as a fighter. I, I don't think that I would ever put myself in that position. I, I hope not. I hope that it doesn't get to that. But um, yeah, that that does that, that isn't a good idea. And um, you know, worst comes to worst, uh, I, I, I just asked Mike to spar me. Like, come on, Mike, I need some work. <laughs> I know he he's he not gonna turn me down. Uh, my uncle Muslim, my brother Sharif. The, the, you know, we got boxing. This is a boxing family. So as far as our, our, our team goes, we're going to come ready regardless. And if worse comes to worse, 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 uh, Big Rock, come on, let's go Let's go 10 real quick just, just so we can get it in. I, I can be ready for this. And my dad still got 10 rounds in him. My he still got 12 rounds in him. So um, it, it, whatever whatever the case may be, I, I highly disagree with the whole no sparring. That's that's not cool. I, I, don't, I would never – recommend a fighter go into a fight with no sparring or I, 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 I would try my best not to do it myself. 
Yeah, I think you know we all need to understand that when boxing is back on properly, we're still going to have to wait a sufficient amount of time before we get the big fights. For example, Joshua Pulev. No way in the world are they going to you know end the quarantine and then the fight's going to happen the next week. There's still going to probably be, I'd say, at least a 12-week camp. Not only that, but also to um, you know to, to build the event again and to sell out all those tickets because a lot of people off the back of this are now in financial difficulties themselves and won't be able to buy the tickets that they that they wanted to buy beforehand so there's a lot of tangibles um i think as soon as the the quarantine's over the only boxing we're really going to get is going to be lower level guys fighting or perhaps guys on the come up that are fighting you know journeyman and stuff like that but we won't care because we want boxing back on our tvs asap anyway but I tell yeah we're not gonna care who fighting we're gonna be tuned in exactly but i tell you what those um those those guys, if there's any you know undefeated prospects coming up that are you know looking to get in there straight away against a journeyman, they need to be careful as as well because while they've been sitting at home, them journeymans have probably still been going to work delivering mail and stuff like that, and they they might just have an edge this time, you know. So they got to be careful too. <laughs> right, you know, You're absolutely right. <laughs> but anyway, that is about it. Like I say at the at the beginning of the show, I said this this podcast would probably go on for about for about an hour. I was totally wrong. It seems like it's going to be about an hour and thirty five minutes, something like that. Um, just before. We both go, myself and Hasim. I'll, I'll give you a, a last little, uh, a last little word to the listeners, Hasim, if you want to say something before we let you go. I just want to say that we can't stress enough how how important this quarantine is. Please stay in the house, stay safe, wash your hands, do not touch your face, and just just keep away from loved ones, keep away from friends, keep away from family, keep away from everybody. Stay in your own house, mind your own business. And, and and turn on the internet. Uh, this is the time to to get control of yourself and to get to know yourself and, and the people that you want to be with or the people that you're with every day. Um, this is not the time to to go and be with family members because this this is an extremely dangerous thing that's going on. That's why we all on lockdown. So I just encourage people to take it serious. And uh, as far as the boxing world, uh, I once again want to thank everybody for their support. Um, please, if you if you want to support me, if you want to follow what I'm doing and, uh, and and watch my race to the world title, follow me on Twitter at underscore Hasim Rockin Jr. Follow me on Instagram at underscore Jr. And uh, like I said, just just show support. Drop a comment. Drop a drop a a, a tweet. I follow a lot of people back. Um, I, I respond. I try to respond to every tweet that I get, whether if it's just a retweet or a like or an actual response. Um, I'm very active in the social media, and um, I think that uh, that that's the that's the next big thing. Just like Devin Haney just showed, he was very active in social media, and now he's he's completely blown up. But um, with, with like I said from the beginning, I I, I, I really want to encourage everybody to be safe because this is not a joke. And um, my prayers go out to all the loved ones, all the people who've lost their loved ones and people that they care about and people who are sick, who are fighting. And I want to say, um, I'm glad that Travis Coffey has, has actually beaten the corona, coronavirus. He's a near and dear friend to me. And um, uh, I, I want to uh, just, I can't express enough how much my prayers, my thoughts, and uh, my heart goes out to anybody affected by this coronavirus. 
powerful words. I echo everything you've said there. Also, shout out to Travis Kaufman, a friend of the show, a good guy. Um, like I say, just my final message to everyone. Um, you know, we're all going through this. This isn't something that, you know, just a, a bunch of people are going through. We're all going through this. We're all suffering. We're all you know, not enjoying being stuck at home all the time, stuff like that, but the importance of it is is, is paramount, you know, it, it really is, um, you know, we, we love our loved ones, and going out to see them and stuff like that risks not only theirs, but also our lives, the important message is to stay at home, like I say, wash your hands, no touching your face, and um, I hope that this podcast has... Um, as, as giving you about an hour and a half or something like that of um, of non-boredom during this time. That is the aim. If we've delivered on that, then we have succeeded. But yeah, just before we, we, we wrap up all the talking, the final thing to do is to welcome our sole guest on this week's podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the former WBA light heavyweight world champion. It is, of course, Mr. Lou DeVal. Lou, welcome to the show, my man. Welcome, welcome. How you doing? Very good, my friend. Very good. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, battling this uh, coronavirus, you know. Scary stuff. Scary stuff, especially, you know, I live in the Bronx, and they are, like, saying bad stuff, you know. So it doesn't sound good for New York City. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Lou, I want to ask you a typical kind of opening question, really. Where did your journey begin in boxing? What's your earliest memory of putting on a pair of gloves? Uh, You're you're probably not going to believe me, but uh, 20 years old, probably just going on 20, the first time I put on gloves. And obviously the the fantastic thing about when you eventually turn pro is that you and your sister both turned professional. I think she turned pro about five years after you did. Obviously you were known as Honey Boy. She was known as Honey Girl. Where did the Honey nicknames originate from? Well, it was originated from a, a, a trainer, my first trainer ever. You know, well, to to let you understand why I put on my first pair of gloves, when I was 20 is because, you know, first of all, I was an athlete. I played sports and uh, I played every sport and I was a TV a guy for sports. You know, I watched boxing, baseball, football, basketball, and I was good at every sport, but I never did boxing because I lived in Queens and it wasn't no boxing gyms, but um, I got into a lot of trouble, you know, when the crack came out, the drugs, you know, and, uh, you know, I went, a couple of it, you know, jail, and you know, went to drug rehab. And then when I came out, I went to the Bronx and uh, I found the gym, and that was it. That was my life. That was something that I, I was destined to do. And obviously, you know, we hear this, we hear this said many times in boxing. You know, boxing has saved me. We hear so many people say that. Would you say boxing saved you, Lou? Oh, it it definitely did. It it uh it changed everything. My my thought of thinking, my humbleness. Uh, it, it teaches you how to be humble. If you're a great fighter, you know what it is to be humbled. Um, I've been humbled, you know, and um, it turned me into a better person. To, to, to give you a little thought about it, I spoke to a friend from prison, right, years later. We grew up together, and uh, I'm talking to him, and when I got off the phone, his uncle told me, hey, you talk like a white boy now. <laughs> so, you know, that's the difference. Like, 
boxing, you know, made me a better person. You know, wasn't talking street and none of that, you know. So that's what boxing did for me. And obviously your pro journey began in January 1992. Obviously, you know, you whizzed, you whizzed through your first kind of 22 fights, really. Four years it took you to get to 22-0, and 15 KOs before, of course, boxing for a world title. The date being April 20th, um, 1996, in North Dakota. You challenged for the WBA light heavyweight world title against the then-champion Virgil Hill. 41-1 and was his record going in. Of course, the one loss came to to Tommy Hearns on points. You didn't win the fight, right. Lou, but you were able to push him real close. Talk me through that fight if you can. Well, um, like I said, um, I played a lot of sports, and uh, I was good at every sport. And boxing was, came the same way to me. I did my homework. I watched TV. I watched sports. I remember the time I was growing up in the projects, I seen when Virgil Hill won the title against Leslie Stewart on ABC Sports. Uh, uh, I I wound up fighting him, but I did my homework. I knew he was a converted fighter. I knew he had no right hand. And, you know, I knew that I was going to give him a a tough fight because I knew he needed a right hand to beat me. And uh, I felt I won the fight. You know, I dropped him. I cut him. I knocked his mouthpiece out of his mouth. I mean, he did no damage to me. I did all the damage. I fought him in his hometown in North Dakota. I felt I won the fight. Obviously, you know, you felt you won the fight. Like I say, it was extremely, extremely close. Um, Would you say, Lou, that, you know, taking the loss mentally, perhaps, did that make you in any way? Did that make you tougher in any way to go on from that? Uh, No, actually, it, it, uh, I'm sorry to say it, 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 it brought me down because, uh, like I said, I thought I won and, it, you know, just, but since I was two and no as a pro, I knew I was going to be a champion. I fought one of the toughest guys that we both was undefeated. And, um, after that fight, I knew that I, I was world championship material. You know what I'm saying? It's like, that took me to the next level because in the third round, going into the fourth, I was on, on the stool saying to myself, oh, my God, how am I going to finish this fight? And when I went back out, the other guy didn't have nothing either. He threw a punch that looked, it felt like a little baby slap, and then I just wound up beating him up. But um, that's when I, I knew I was going to be champ, so my confidence level was really high there. And uh, I fought with a lot of great fighters that brought me there. Sparring is what made me champion. Again, getting back onto the title chase, obviously after this quote-unquote loss, you bounce back with four wins, three by KO before having a second run at the world title. Once again, for the WBA belt, this time the strap was vacant, and in the opposite corner stood Eddie Smolders. You had to travel to Germany for the fight. A young Vladimir Klitschko was even on the undercard. Um, Ultimately, you'd win the fight by... Yeah, he made his debut, I think. I think he had a couple fights, but he was early on in his career, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, you know, ultimately you'd win the fight by TKO in round eight. Tell us about that night that your dreams came true. No, I just, like I said, I was confident. I really felt that, um, that I was a way better fighter than Eddie Smolters, you know? And, um, 
I knew he had power, but I just knew I was just too smart and too fast for him. What was it like to become a world champion? I'm sure, like I say, it was your dream from early on. You said it yourself. After about two fights, you felt you know, that you, you were going to become a champion at some point. And obviously the Virgil Hill fight not going your way. But, you know, actually doing it, actually becoming a world champion, did did you surprise yourself in any way? It must have been amazing, obviously. Um, To be honest, no, it didn't. Because I knew I was destined for it. What, I'm going to tell you another story. My first year fighting, I was I was into boxing very hard when I was like 20 years old. Going, I was going on 20. It was 1989, and I went into the Golden Gloves. And um, when I won the Golden Gloves, I won five fights, and uh, that was the the happiest day of my life because I realized that I was a fighter, and I was good. You understand? And um, my confidence level boosted after that. But uh, Virgil Hill fight, you know, I really believe that I did what I had to do in his hometown. I, you know, and that's just how I feel, you know. And to be honest with you, too, I'm a slick fighter. I never got hit so much, like with the jab, you know. And um, I felt I lost the fight. I was I was depressed because I thought I could have did more. But when I watched the fight on video, I said, man, I, I beat this guy. Because that was the different level I went to when I was 2-0, 22 22-0. You know what I'm saying? I didn't fight nobody at that level. This guy, when I fought him, he had 22 title defenses. I only had 22 fights, one 10-rounder under my belt. But again, like I say, you traveled to Germany. What was it like to, you know, win your world title on the road in Europe even? You know, it's something that not not a lot of fighters from where you're from managed to do, you know? Well, I, I knew I had to stop him because, you know, I seen fights in Europe that is so lopsided, it's incredible. And um, and Europe wasn't, when I was fighting, Europeans were just coming on the scene. You know what I'm saying? Really strong. Like Darius Nisashevsky. He's the one who beat Virgil Hill after Virgil Hill beat Henry Mask. And then after he beat Henry Mass, he beat Darius Nisashevsky. So Darius had to fight me, but he gave up the belt not to fight me, which that was pretty smart of him because I thought I would have stopped him. And obviously the same night you won your world title, I believe your sister was just having her second pro fight that same night, obviously a few thousand miles away in the States. Was that difficult for, for either one of you not having each other by your side, so to speak? No. My sister's my backbone, and um, the reason I got my sister into boxing because we grew up in a tough neighborhood in the projects, and we're just we was built for this stuff. So, my mother, let's make a prime example. My mother, my mother never went to none of my fights. My my mother used to go to all my sister's fights front row. <laughs> so that'll tell you a lot right there that. My mother was confident of my sister. <laughs> but we was built for this. This is what we grew up in. We grew up in a tough neighborhood, you know, mostly black people. And, you know, it was tough. Without a father, we had to learn how to fight. 
And obviously your first world title defence came on July 18th at the Madison Square Garden. A unification, though, for your title and also the WBC light heavyweight world title. Your opponent, Roy Jones Jr., um, sadly, you'd, you'd go on to lose the fight on points, but you became the first man to knock Jones Jr. down. A brilliant one, too, by the way. I saw it again yesterday. Just talk us through that fight there, because, again, a brilliant fight. Once again, you know, not to make no excuses and all that, but um, when I fought Roy Jones, they told me at the last minute, they offered me 450000 I said, no, you crazy. And that was a lot of, they, they was giving me a lot of time to get ready for the fight. But I turned the money down. Then they offered me eight fifty. And but they offered me eight fifty maybe a month, three weeks later, you know what I'm saying? So I, I probably had a month and one week to get ready for that fight. And I just I didn't get to train properly the way I wanted to. And remember I didn't fight for three hundred and one days. And the my first defense was supposed to be in Madison Square Garden on the undercard of Holyfield Akawanda and that whole show got canceled and that's why I took the Roy Jones fight the last minute I couldn't turn down that money so Lou do you ever look back at you know at at that opportunity that you obviously said yes to do you look back now and kind of kick yourself is it a regret of yours taking the fight or not no I, I, I don't have no regrets like I said where I came from and you know I, like I'm telling you now, winning the Golden Gloves was the happiest day of my life because I felt like I was somebody. I was a street kid. I was on drugs. I, you know, I got my life changed around. So that was accomplishment for me. I'm a fighter. I won the Golden Gloves in New York City. I won five fights to win the fight. If I lost one, I would be out. That was my greatest achievement. And after that, I just went on from there. I just, how can, how can you stop after winning the Golden Gloves? Especially in a place like New York, not the easiest place to win a Golden Gloves. Exactly. Obviously. Yeah, for, exactly. For sure. Again, after this fight, you bounce back with four wins before fighting again for that WBA world title. By this time, Roy Jones had been elevated to super champion. You boxed for the vacant title against Bruno Gerard in his backyard in France. The fight would end in a split draw. I'm sure you felt like you did enough, though, that night again, Lou. Yeah, once again, you know, just hometown decision I I mean when you talk about boxing you talk about uh, if you're talking amateurs you're talking about being busy if you're talking about pro you're talking about punches that mean something you know punches that do damage I mean if you watch the fight the guy didn't hit me with nothing he couldn't hurt me he didn't do nothing I must have hurt him a couple of times he waited for five rounds to fight. I mean, listen, uh, Stevie Wonder saw that fight. He he would have knew that I, I won the fight. He would not see it. God knows I won that fight, especially to get a draw. And obviously, Bruno Gerard, a very fortunate man. Um, in his next fight, he got another opportunity at the title, which of course remained vacant because of the split draw. He boxed for the title, he won it. He then successfully defended it one time, and that's when the rematch between you both took place. Once again, you found yourself back in France. This time, the fight would once again be super close, but this time, he carved out a split decision victory. Again, was it um, two strikes of luck on his part there, Lou? 
Well, like I said, you know, you got to understand circumstances. Uh, once again, I go back to my childhood and growing up, and I wasn't educated. I signed with a guy. This guy, you know, did a lot of dirty stuff to me. He he never did purse bids. You know what a purse bid is? He's my manager, and my promoters never did a purse bid. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, my manager is supposed to be for my best interests, and that's what happened. Like, with the Roy Jones, I really made $1.2 million for that fight. I found out by his partner, he stole 400000 from him and the promoter. My point is that you, I, I should have been a three-time, four-time world champion if I had the right people by right. If I was fighting now, I'll be three-time world champion. Yeah, I mean these these managers, Lou. I mean it's 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 an old town in boxing. Obviously, you know there's been so many managers and stuff like that over the years that um, you know that that have really been in the game for their best interests and not of the interests of the fighter that they supposedly represent. Do you feel like those exactly. those types exactly. of managers? Do you feel like they're they're kind of harder to you know in this day and age? Do you feel like they're what's the word I'm looking for here? Like they're there's there's less of them now because of the spotlight, because of, you know, the cameras that would be in their face if something like this were to get out. Exactly. You hit it right on the head. You know, it's more revealing now. Like, like the, these kids are more smarter. We have technology. We have phones. When I was when I was fighting and when I was a sparring partner in France, I was a sparring partner, they had cell phones. We didn't have cell phones in the United States. When I went to Germany to spar with Rocky Rossiano, I don't know what his name, I don't know how to say his name. He's supposed to fight, um, I think it's Darius Mississippi. And uh, he, uh, they had cell phones. Everybody had cell phones. We didn't have cell phones. I was wondering what was going on with the United States. Like, I thought we were the powerhouses. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So my point is, we I didn't have that knowledge to you know about purse bids. You know how I learned. Don King told me about a purse bid. Don King, because I was taking my promoter slash first he was my manager, then he became my promoter, and that was during the times when I was fighting Bruno Girardi. He he's my promoter. Like I said, this is the reason. I, when I believe in somebody and I trust somebody, I trust them. The first day he became a manager was the first day that I turned pro. We both went to the boxing commission. He had to pass the test, and then he signed. He passed the test. He gave me a $5,000 check, and I signed with him. And he became my professional manager. And that was, I was his first fighter. So now he has star boxing. Okay, okay. After that fight, Lou, you, you remained pro for another seven years. You boxed nine times, racking up five wins, three losses, and a draw before retiring in 2009. I want to ask, um, you know, there was a time where both you and your sister boxed on the same card. It only happened just one time in your careers. Um, what was that like? Obviously, you both got wins in New York. Would it have been better for yourself? Would you have liked to, you know, box on the same cards more with your sister or perhaps not? Well, it was a different time for us, you know. And my sister was coming up in the game, and I was, like, on standby. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Um, listen, I would have loved it, but you got to remember now, I started in 1989. My sister, she started in 1996, a week before I had to go fight Virgil Hill. My sister won the Golden Gloves, and my sister beat three Golden Gloves champs. They both went all in the same division. That was the second year of women's boxing. That was in 1995. So my sister fought in 96. And she fought three. She didn't fight three champions, but she won that division with the three champions in it. I was fighting Virgil Hill the next week. Yeah. I flew to North Dakota the next day after she won the Golden Gloves. Wow. That's amazing. My, let me say one more thing. You wanted to know how I got my name, Honey Boy, right? Yes, sir. Well, my old trainer, the first guy, his name is Ulysses Geminis. He was a well-known fighter, too, you know, a real gentleman, great guy. I kept him in my corner. Anyway, when I first came to the gym, I was cocky, you know. He was very low-key and humble. And he was like, hey, I want to give you a taste of honey, you know. So I'm like, what do you mean? I want you to spar. I want you to get a taste of honey. I'm like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Boy, I found out the hard way what a taste of honey was. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got hit. I was just hitting people when they go down. But with gloves on, you're still, you're still getting hit. So I got I, had, I got a taste of that honey. So after a while, we've been together for so long. And fighters used to come in like me and said they had this experience or they was this good. He used to say, Lewis. He was kind of like punch drunk. And he'd say, look, I want you to give him a taste of honey. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's what I started doing. I was giving people a taste of honey. So that's why I made my name Honey Boy. And my sister, she looks up to me. She calls herself Honey Girl. That's an amazing story because there's so many nicknames in boxing. It's not just this day and age, but it's it's been a, a thing forever, really. There's been these crazy yeah. nicknames with no yeah. real meaning behind them. That's a really cool backstory to your to your nickname. Yeah, it's a true story. It's a true story. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. Obviously, like I say, you you finally boxed in in two thousand and nine. After retiring, Lou, how soon did you start training people? I've been training people. You got to remember when I signed with my manager, right? When I was uh want to know, no matter of fact, I moved into the. He opened up a new gym. He opened up a new gym. And he got me up. He made he got he made me an apartment downstairs, and um, I lived there. So sometimes I see some kids. I helped them out, and I I lived I literally from three and zero to two twenty two and zero. I lived in the boxing gym. Wow. So that's what made me. You know, I had made champions. I made a Golden Gloves champion who wind up winning six Golden Gloves. His name is Glenn Gandhi. He won his first Golden Gloves with me. I was 10-0 as a pro. I made another kid a champion in the Golden Gloves, and that was my sixth. You know, honestly, I'm a better trainer than fighter. I can teach. Like I said, I watch TV. I watch the breakdown. I see strategy. That's how I've been in every sport. How I accelerated. I went to an all-black school to play basketball in North Carolina. My sister went to Alabama University. So we have a lot of experience in sports 
and competing. So we did that. Baseball, my sister was on my baseball team, and she was a pitcher. So my sister started boxing at 26, 27 years old, and she won four belts in three weight divisions. She won the Golden Gloves twice. Remember those three girls I told you who was in the same weight division? Yeah. They all, the next year, they left the division. <laughs> and then the, uh, she only had to fight one fight. She destroyed the girl. And then my sister won the first Nationals ever in 1997. The first women's Nationals ever. My sister won it. So she had to go on to her own career. So she went back to Florida. She found a trainer and a conditioning coach. And, you know, she ran over with her career and I ran with mine. When she had big fights, I went to them. When I had big fights, she came to them. So that was basically what it was. Obviously, you know, as you trained more people, obviously, you know, the link up came with with Badu Jack. That's a that's a big one. Um, obviously, I'm guessing one of your greatest training achievements has to have been the night you guided Badu to the WBA light heavyweight title, your old belt. Um, what was that like? Because that's that's just something that you know is is so rare. It's probably never been done before. If it has been, it's been done once or twice. No, no. Uh... Once again, my best night was when my sister won the Golden Gloves, and she had three champions in the division, which I thought she had no chance with the girl who she fought in the finals. She, I thought she was going to get killed. And my sister, that was the greatest moment. That's amazing, man. You're a proud brother. Yeah, no, I'm just honest. Those were moments that, like, with Badu, we have a lot of history a lot of people don't know. When he came from Sweden, Shannon, Bru- Shannon Briggs recognized Sha- uh, uh, Badu in Sweden. He brought him down to Florida when I was, while I was training fighting. You know what I'm saying? I was training fighters in Florida, and I was part of a team. Like with a guy who had money, and yeah, he brought some Dominican fighters. He got some Cuban. He signed a lot of fighters. So I met Badu. We lived in the same house. I cooked for him, and he was two, and I was a pro. And I trained two Dominicans too. They became world champs too. Those guys. But my point is that the company went down, and then Badu was stuck in the house, and uh, we had we he, he had nowhere to go. He didn't want to go back to Sweden, so he signed with somebody. And they recommend him. The, the the manager told him to go to Vegas and go with Eddie Mustafa. He told me he wanted me to come with him. And I'm like, I can't come with you. You just 2-0. I'm not going to be able to make no money. So, you know, I went back to the Bronx, started training fighters. You know, that's what I do. You know, that's how I make my living. And um, Badu invited me to the fight. He started doing good, kept in touch with me. And... My fighter was fighting in the Barclays Center, in the Barclays Center for the Golden Gloves Champions. They moved it from Madison Square to the Barclays. So my fighter was fighting the same night Badu was fighting, right? He was supposed to win that fight and fight a, a title eliminator. So he, he wanted me to come. The fight was upstate New York. I told him I can't make it. I'm sorry. I got my fighter fighting about. So my fighter won. I celebrated. I had a couple of drinks. I forgot about Badu's fight. I went to sleep. The next day, I wake up to the gym early because I got a lot of clients and fighters. When I go to the gym, one of the guys tell me, did you see what happened to Badu? I said, what happened? 
He said he got dropped. He got stopped. Oh, man. I said, what? I said, oh, as soon as he said that, I called him. When I called him, he, he, he said he got caught with a punch. And he said, listen, he, this is his exact words. He said, bro, please come down. I really need you. Please. And that was it. I came down. See, that's really cool, Lou, because, you know, again, we're in, we're in, you know, this sport now that, you know, is, is such a business these days, especially, and a fighter coming off a loss in that fashion, a first round stoppage, that's, that's a, that's a point where a lot of, you know, a lot of close people to that particular boxer usually just disappear, you know, that's a, that's a tough time for you to come in and start turning things around, and like I say, you know, you've got to take massive credit for what he's gone on to achieve because it's been nothing short of absolute brilliance, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, I got an interview that I saved because one day again, I, I, my dude was getting interviewed by Showtime, and um, they asked him what was the biggest change in his career. He said my name, Luther Val. I didn't see it. I was, I was asleep already, and then. Um, and then the guy was, like, trying to talk some other stuff. And then he said, no, but what really was the big difference? And he said, Luther Deval. <laughs> like, he was expecting him to say something different. Like, that's what I do. I'm a teacher. I teach, and I put the work in. You know, a lot of people don't teach. You don't have teachers no more. You got guys training fighters don't know what they're doing. I teach how to hurt somebody. I teach how to protect yourself. That's what I teach. I teach range. I teach your hands up. If you see me fight, if you know about me, I don't fight with my hands up. But I don't teach that. I teach fundamentals. That's what I do. I teach sharpness. That's what I teach. I teach the way a real fighter is supposed to fight. And that's how I make fighters or make upsets. Because that's all I do. If you understand it, Ronald Gabriel. Ronald Gabriel in Mayweather's gym lost to a bum. He was ranked. He lost to a bum. I started training him. He won about three fights, four fights in a row. But he still was with Eddie Mustafa. He didn't want to get rid of him. What happened, I was putting all the work in and everything. The first fight before Benavides, it was a close fight. Yeah, we dropped him and everything. Yeah. And I'm just trying to tell you, I took him to a world title fight. Yeah. It's his problem that he kept Eddie Mustafa. If he didn't keep Eddie Mustafa, trust me, we would have. It would have been a different fight. How is Ronald, by the way? Because obviously, you know, he had that fight with with Benavidez was real close. Then they had the rematch. Since then, it kind of seems like he's disappeared. How is he? Where is he? What's he up? What's he up to these days? Okay, uh, I keep in touch with Ronald. I like Ronald. He's a great kid. Um, Problem happened with, with Ronald that he came to New York for me to train him because I wasn't going to Vegas. So he came down, I got him a place, rented out, whatever, and we was working. And um, he was supposed to fight on the undercard of uh, Javante Davis in Baltimore. When Remember when Javante Davis, the main event in his hometown, Baltimore? We were supposed to fight that night. He had a guy who said he was a conditioning coach. The guy wound up messing up his freaking back. The day of the day we was leaving to Baltimore driving. So I don't know. I went back to Vegas to train Badu. 
and Floyd promised to put him on the other card, another card. I think Floyd is like blackballing him. Hmm. You know, you got to remember Floyd Mayweather, his his uh, cousin, his uh, manager. He was managing Ronald. Ronald got rid of him. Okay. So you know, this game is this game is bad. Yeah. And like I say once again, you know, when you when you guided Badu to to win your old belt again, what what an achievement that was. But obviously the latest news concerning yourself and Badu, some people don't know this, but it was your decision to, to, to split with Badu. You made the decision before Badu's last fight against John Pascal. Um obviously that fight Lou, Badu was expected to win. Obviously, he didn't get the win. Did Badu losing that fight make it any harder for you to maintain your decision and walk away? Uh, no. Um, once again, I'm a teacher. Um, I'm a trainer. That's what I do for a living. When I can't do my job, you know, it happens to all the fighters. Once they get the money, the success, they forget where they come from. And I'm I don't want to be part of that. I we Marcus Brown, he did not train properly. He did not listen to me. Uh once again, he didn't train properly for Pasquale. If he would have did what he's supposed to do, like we start when we started together, we would have easy victories. Yeah. And you know, I know you consider yourself a great trainer, a better coach than than a fighter as well. You say, um, Badu. The the latest news is he's now linked up with Jonathan Banks. Do you feel like that's a good mix? It's a bit of a strange one. Uh, I don't know. I don't know him as a trainer. You know, I, I can't talk about the next man. I just know what I bring to the table, and I and I can tell you this. I can promise you this. When I leave a fighter, they're never the same. That's all I gotta say, and that's a true story. It happened to my sister. She declined. It happened to my little brother, who was five and all the pro, and won the Golden Gloves twice. And you got to remember my history. Me and my sister are the first brother and sister to win the, ever in history to win the Golden Gloves in New York City. First brother and sister. So we made a lot of history together. And you got to remember, I have three siblings. I made them all Golden Gloves champs. My brother Richie, Golden Gloves champ. I won the Golden Gloves in 89. My sister won in 96, 97. My little brother won in 99 and 2000. And my brother Richie won it in 2000. So I'm the only one who lost in 90 because I got robbed against Richard Frazier. Politics again. He's a police officer. He fought Roy Jones too. I fought him in the big garden. And they robbed me. So I'm the only one who lost in the Golden Gloves. <laughs> and I should be undefeated. <laughs> and Lou, what what are you up to now? Obviously, like I say, you, you didn't want to keep, you know, going to Vegas. You wanna pretty much stay, you know, where where you're meant to be. What are you up to now? Who who are you training now? Any names that you wanna give a mention to? Well, it's a lot of guys. I'm, look, every listen to this. I was in Mayweather's, right? Mm -hmm. You know how many people want me to trade them? You know what they say to me? They can't afford me. That's what they say. That's the joke, but it's not about that. It's about I'm not going to go. I can't go to Vegas and 
not be comfortable, not eat every day. See, I, you know, not, you know what I'm saying, buy my stuff and I don't want to go. If I'm going to go to Vegas, it's got to be for a purpose. Like Ladarius Miller, we already have a relationship. I've been training him. I've been working with him. I got him sharp, but the last fight he fought, he came in overweight and, and I didn't come back to Vegas because he can't afford me. But the cut man, who's Floyd's cut man, told me he can't afford you. That's why. But when he gets the big fight, he's going to call me. If Ronald gets the big fight, he's going to call me. Anybody with a big fight, they know they know who I am now. I put my my imprint in, in the Mayweather gym. And anywhere I go, Champ's gym, I get offers to train other people. I got have this guy named Oscar. To me, the most talented fighter that I trained, but he, 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 it's not that he can't afford me. It's just that he lives in Sweden. I live in New York. He came, he was here for a month to train with me. And his wife was having a baby. But my point is, listen, this guy could fight. Oscar, I, I forgot his name. You know his last name? Well, his name is Oscar. And, um, oh my God. This kid is talented. Blonde hair, blue eyes, and he fights like skills unbelievable. If I get two months with him, trust me, he'll be the best fighter that I trained from that Mayweather gym. Wow. Wow. Well, I want to keep an, keep an eye out for him, find out. If you find out his last name, Lou, please forward it on. That's uh, That sounds interesting to me. Uh, I'm definitely, I'm going to send it to you, but he's, he's, He's like my brother. He came all the way down just for me to train him. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And Ronald. Ronald, too. And Ronald lives in Vegas. I want to ask you, Lou, with the things that you've achieved, obviously, in your own career as a boxer and now as a trainer, um, you know, you're a happy man. You sound like a happy man. Am I right in saying you're a happy man? You're happy with the way things have turned out? Um, I'm happy for the man I became. You know what I'm saying? I'm happy that... I, I could have been already dead. You know what I'm saying? I'm happy to be blessed. You know, I'm happy to have my kids, my son, my daughter, my grandkids. You know, that's what I'm happy about. You know, I'm a God man. I don't go to church. I'm not Catholic. I'm not Muslim. I'm not whatever. I'm just a God man. And I believe in God. And God has a destiny. And where that destiny will go, I don't know, but I believe in him. And I know that's where I just know I don't belong in Vegas right now. Well said. Well said. And just finally, Lou, before I let you go, um, we've we've really come to the end of, of all the questions. I want to just give you an opportunity, though, to send out a message to anyone that may be listening, particularly in the UK, guys that don't necessarily always get to hear from you. If you've got a message to guys over here, this side of the water, that support yourself, just send a message now if you've got anything you want to say before we let you go, my man. Well, my advice is to everybody, stay hungry, stay humble, a discipline and your dreams will come true. But you gotta stay hungry. That's my best words. Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, Lou, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, my friend, and going over your entire career, boxing and training. God bless you, and I hope that we can catch up again in the near future, my friend. God bless you.
Okay, and this wraps up episode 234 of the Boxar Podcast. I've been your host, Joey Coastman. Hassim Rackman Jr. has been with me for the duration of the show. A massive thank you to our sole guest on this week's show, the former WBA light heavyweight world champion, Lou Deval. Again, a massive thank you to you, our listeners, for listening to us once again. But that's about everything from us. Remember to stay safe. Remember to wash your hands. Stay at home as often as you can, uh, please, if you if you do have the time, tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend about the podcast. We shall start up a new competition again real soon, so, so uh, don't miss that one, probably in the next few weeks. And like I say, we shall see you all again next week. Take care.